Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Compliance Beat podcast. I'm Eric Moorhead. And as I have in the last few episodes, I want to talk a little bit more uh, about uh, the upcoming SCCE, Society for Corporate Compliance and Ethics, uh, Compliance and Ethics Institute in Las Vegas. Um, I'm excited uh, about it, and I think uh, partly that's due to the uh, circumstances over the last two years where um, there was a completely virtual event last year, which I think went well, but it you know, it has its downsides. So I'm looking forward to seeing people that I, uh, I know and, and meeting people that I, uh, I, haven't, I haven't met before and uh, just being um, at the event in Las Vegas uh, later this month, later sept- in September, is going to be awesome. It's occurring at the Aria uh, Hotel in Las Vegas uh, from Sunday, September 19th through Wednesday, September 22nd. I'm, I'm going to be speaking twice during the event uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, one is a completely virtual session, uh, which I mentioned and talked a little bit about a couple episodes back, um, a session on 30 years of the sentencing guidelines with uh, Kathleen Grilly, the general counsel of the U.S. Sentencing Commission. Uh, and then also um, I will have a session on Tuesday at uh, 4 p.m., um, I guess mountain time, Las Vegas time, uh, session 702, Lessons from 60 Code of Conduct Projects. What are five things you need for a best-in-class code? And that is going to be live in Las Vegas, but it's also going to be broadcast live. Uh, so if you can't make it to Las Vegas or you haven't signed up yet and you're thinking about, you're on the fence about whether you want to sign up or not, uh, take a look at the corporatecompliance.org uh, website. There's a, a um, uh, schedule and a uh, brochure on on the event. So even if you can't make it, and most people probably at this late date, if you already aren't aren't already planning to be in Las Vegas, you probably can't make it. Uh, but you certainly can participate. Uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, virtual um, uh, live broadcasts. Several of the sessions, each each session, are going to be live broadcasts, so that people who aren't going to be physically there in the space. Um, which is understandable given the circumstances we are still living with, uh, you can still participate. And I am happy to say that my session uh, discussing code of conduct is going to be one of those sessions that's going to be uh, broadcast live or virtually as well. And so if you can participate, I'd sure love to see you there either in live or or across the uh, in- internet. <laughs> uh, today I want to build on... Um, uh, and talk a little bit more about some of the things that I hope to touch on during that session on code of conduct development. And in particular, I want to talk about three keys to evaluating or benchmarking codes of conduct. Uh, this is really crucial. Um, it's it's uh, crucial to be able to benchmark or evaluate uh, not only your code, but other codes of conduct. The expectation uh, is not only to make sure that you have a code that is comparable to your peers, just because that's good practice. But the expectation from our friends at the Department of Justice who have uh, written and revised their memoranda on effective compliance programs here over the last few years, three times, and the standards uh, established by the sentencing guidelines that you are going to 
periodically review uh, your program, which includes your code of conduct. There's no way to really do that with your code of conduct other than uh, benchmarking against other codes. So let's jump right in. Uh, the first uh, key uh, to a successful code benchmarking project uh, is selecting those pure codes and non-pure codes that you are going to have uh, as your um, inputs for your benchmarking project. Um, there's no uh, perfect science here. Uh, I typically encourage organizations to at least have, uh, at least do a deep dive in reviewing and, and taking apart uh, 10 to a dozen to maybe two dozen, 20, 20 to 24 uh, peer codes of conduct. I think there's a sweet spot somewhere in there with about, you know, maybe 15 or 16 codes uh, that you, you know, you're not just going to, I mean, you may review many, many more than that. You may uh, look at, you know, maybe a couple hundred codes if, you, if this is a project that's been ongoing for a while or you've been thinking about for a while. But as far as really kind of breaking down and evaluating uh, and like reading, reading, you know, front to back, reviewing uh, the content, the, the, the design, uh, the organization, and other aspects of a peer code. I think you want to have a dozen to, to 20 uh, peer and non-peer codes. Now, why do I keep saying peer and non-peer? I think that the tendency would be uh, to kind of take that list of competitors that you have in your mind for your organization and go out and try to find their codes of conduct and, uh, and have that be uh, your benchmarking data set. Uh, I think that you want to cross-pollinate a little bit. I always encourage clients to have two lists that they're working on when they're trying to select the organizations that uh, they're going to benchmark against. And when I actually undertake for a client to do the benchmarking, which I do uh, pretty regularly when I do a code of conduct project, um, I, I will do that. I'll prepare two lists. I'll prepare a list of sort of the obvious uh, competitors and, and, and true peers that are in the space. Uh, and then I'll prepare another list of codes that I think have qualities, uh, you know, and not necessarily all the qualities because there's no perfect code that has that hits all the right notes um, so that you have some cross-pollinization so that you have, uh, you know, for example, if your organization is in aerospace, well, then you know naturally who your competitors are going to be. But, you know, perhaps you want to have consumer uh, devices, retail, finance, uh, other manufacturing, uh, you know, bring in other uh, uh, codes from other organizations. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, why do you want both? Let's, let's start there. Well, you want peers, obviously, because presumably they're facing the same sort of risks or the risk universes pretty close to your risk universe, although not perfect. Every organization is different. And so it's helpful to see how they, uh, what kind of coverage they have, what risks and risk topics they cover and, and how they cover them, uh, what the expectations are around those risk uh, topics, and uh, how they uh, speak to uh, their stakeholders about um, uh, those risks and those expectations. Uh, so that's probably the primary reason you want to make sure you have peers in your group. Uh, but when you cross-pollinate with organizations that are outside your space, uh, first thing is, 
if there are 20 to 25 risk topics, and by risk topics, I mean things like, you know, substantive compliance issues like harassment, anti-corruption, antitrust, uh, you know, things like record keeping. Uh, the, of those 20 to 25 topics that are typically in most organizational codes, usually between 18 and 20 of those topics have some overlap. If you're in an organization that includes human beings, you have potential harassment uh, and just discrimination and other workplace issues. The, there's some commonality no matter what uh, business you happen to be in. And so I think it can be helpful when you're selecting those uh, uh, codes for your benchmarking data set that you have true peers, but you also have organizations that are peers in that they are uh, operating uh, you know, uh, as organizations of human beings and, 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 and uh, have, have a lot of similarities no matter what business they might be in. Um, it's also helpful sometimes too because some organizations are, uh, some, some industries are more sensitive to trends than others. So a perfect example would be uh, if you looked at codes of conduct, if we go back, let's say, 10 years, uh, if you looked at codes of conduct uh, 10 years ago, or, or certainly 15 years ago for sure, and you were looking for discussions around anti-corruption and anti-bribery, you probably would find that in the extractive industries. Because uh, starting in the early 2000s, uh, the extractive industri industries, uh, particularly oil and gas in my old stomping grounds of Houston, uh, were the organizations that were getting hit with uh, the, the original uh, ramp up of investigations for FCPA uh, when both SEC and the Department of Justice, for the fraud section of the Department of Justice first really started enforcing that statute again uh, 20 odd years ago. Um, so they were sensitive to the issue of anti-corruption before other industries were. So when you mix it up a little bit and you're looking at organizations outside your industry, not only will you get interesting different takes on the subjects that are all that always overlap, like harassment, but you may see certain topics, certain risk topics that are being discussed uh, that maybe in your industry haven't become an issue yet, but you can it allows you to go through the process of thinking about uh, those particular risks and whether there's something that you may want to discuss or consider discussing in the future. So there's lots of good reasons to mix it up. So that's key number one. Make sure you have a diverse group of organizations in your benchmarking data set for your code of conduct benchmarking. The second is have some criteria. Uh, if you just look at codes of conduct uh, after a while, um, take it from somebody who's worked on many, many code of conduct projects, they can start to look very similar. Um, they can, the, 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 the topics, the construction, the organization of these codes can be seem very similar and it's hard to pick out uh, what exactly is uh, worthwhile and what, um, what is different, what's interesting, what might work and what might not work. So you need to have some criteria for ev evaluating your code of conduct. Um, what might that criteria be? I think there's some basic topics that you'll want to look at at every, uh, you want to look at in any code that you're evaluating, both your own code, but also those peer codes and external codes that are you're including into your mix. Oh, and, uh, and one last thing I want to say on the first topic of putting together your data set. Remember, 
all publicly traded companies on the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ in particular must have their code on their website. It's a listing requirement. So uh, if you're looking for peer codes of conduct or other organizations' codes of conduct, they're not always in the same place. They're very often in the investor relations section or if there's a separate compliance uh, and, and governance section of their website, you might find it there. But uh, they have to have it. It has to be on their website. It's a requirement. So just be aware that that's one of the good things about uh, this process of evaluating and benchmarking uh, codes of conduct is you have a lot of material to work with. So criteria. Uh, there are some things that I think you want to, to uh, always look for and always evaluate in a code. When you're talking about content, the first is tone from the top, uh, executive messaging. It's pretty common, uh, I would say not universal, but pretty common certainly for any code that's been updated in the last decade or more to have a CEO message, a message from the chair, a message from maybe both, a message perhaps from uh, the chief compliance officer. Um, I've also seen uh, joint messages from the entire board uh, in codes of conduct. Some sort of tone from the top executive messaging uh, is, uh, you know, I think an integral part of a updated uh, best in class uh, effective code of conduct. Now, it can't just be your know, typical blurb from the annual report. You can't just you know, take that message or the message from the all hands and, and throw it into the code. There are, are some particular things that I think you want to have in, in your uh, message, from, particularly from the CEO or one of the executives or many of the exec executives of the organization. The first is, this is our code. This applies to everyone. It applies to uh, the CEO. It applies to the board. It applies to all the directors, executives, and uh, stakeholders in this organization. Uh, making sure that it's clear that, that, that this is an important document, it's a statement of purpose, it's a mission statement about uh, the expectations around behavior in the organization, and that it applies to everybody. Second key, really, really important message that should be in the executive message every time is if you do nothing else, ask questions, report concerns, speak up. Really needs to be coming from the lips, so to speak, of the top, the top exec executive of the organization. It's really, really important. And then married to that, uh, some uh, discussion, even if it's just a sentence, about how the organization has a non-retaliation policy and will uh, make sure that those who speak up will be protected and those that engage in retaliation will be punished. I know that most codes will have a separate section that goes into detail or some detail about the non-retaliation policy of the organization. That's great. Uh, you can't mention that or uh, speaking up too many times. <laughs> so it's important, I think, it's my opinion, uh, that an effective message from the top of the organization talks about reporting and, and in conjunction with reporting uh, the non-retaliation statement of the organization. That's really, really important. Also in content, uh, you want to address the mission and values and commitments of the organization. Um, if you have, if you again, if you want to talk about common pieces of the puzzle when you're flipping through codes of conduct, uh, in the beginning of a code of conduct, the first three or four pages, you have that CEO message or that executive message. And usually, 
not always, but usually you have a page with the values of the organization. To me, it's a completely missed opportunity if you have uh, that uh, message there and that's the only time that of those, say, seven corporate values, six of them are, are not mentioned again in the rest of the document. So uh, one of the other things I think that's worthwhile, criteria that, that is really worthwhile to, to measure is uh, how the code integrates those values into the broader discussion of risk topics and, and the other topics in the, or in the code of conduct, not just that second or third page of the document, but throughout the document. Um, and then uh, sort of the meat and potatoes of the uh, code is obviously the different risk topics. Uh, so again, as I said, you may have between 18 and 25 risk topics in an average code of conduct. Uh, and perhaps in the majority of those are pretty similar in, in most organizations. There are things that you sort of expect to see in every code of conduct. You expect to see uh, workplace respect, workplace safety, and pretty much every code of conduct, for example. Uh, but it would be all of those risk topics. Um, another thing that I think you want to look at overall in the code from start to finish is readability and tone. You want a conversation, for most organizations, you want a conversational document. You want a document that's at the appropriate re reading level, is not overly long, um, and codes are getting shorter. I know, just to give you an example, when I started this process of working with organizations on their codes 10 years ago, uh, the benchmark at that point as far as length went, and, and, and you know, you always gave the caveat, you know, your mileage may vary. Some codes are longer and they're great. Some codes are shorter and they're great. But we used to always kind of shoot for 10,000 words as sort of the benchmark of, you know, what an average code would be. That number is a lot shorter now. Uh, I would say it's between six and 8,000 words. And I'm working with a couple of clients here in the last six months where we put together comprehensive codes that have touched on all the risk topics that they had in their previous code, but are closer to five or 6,000 words. Uh, shorter is better. Uh, if you can get it done in five to 6,000 words, that's great. So you also wanna look at readability. So you wanna look at the language that's being used, but you wanna look at length, how the language is presented. Comprehension aids, uh, so scenarios or Q&As, uh, call-out boxes with definitions, uh, bulleted lists, you know, different ways to present uh, the information in the code of conduct other than a narrative format. So you want to look at those comprehension aids. Uh, presentation and style, so what does it look like? Does it have photos? Are those photos clearly stock images? Is it people gathered around uh, the uh, conference table? Which I'm guilty, I, hey, I'm as guilty as anybody when I do a presentation. I was just putting my presentations together for uh, SCCE here in the last couple of weeks. And I'm sure I, I, if I go back through, there's a couple obvious stock images in those presentations. But you know, this is, a, this is something you wanna look at is what do the images look like in those benchmarked codes in your code? Um, uh, are they clearly uh, images that are, that are stock images or are they images uh, that the organization that 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 represent that organization. Uh, what does it what does it have a brand feel to it, like a like a marketing piece? Uh, do, can you open it up and you know exactly right away what that who that company is based on the colors and the brand? Um, and then a couple other things like uh, public availability. How you know I was talking a little bit earlier about finding these things. Uh, how hard or how easy is it to find the code is is something that you might want to consider too. 
those are just some criteria. You know, you might have some other criteria that you think are important or that your stakeholders think are, think, think are important. But whatever it is, I, you, need to, you need to memorialize this. You need to have a methodology and you need to sit down and write out what these criteria are and think about how you might grade uh, under those criteria. The third and final key is once you have your criteria uh, that you're going to review and grade and benchmark against, you know, readability, uh, what does it say about retaliation, what does it say about these 18 risk topics that uh, we care about, uh, you know, how does the executive message, how is the executive message messaging handled, what does it look like, how is it laid out, what are the comprehension aids. Once you have all that together and you have your uh, dozen to two dozen uh, pure and um, other codes that you're going to use in your benchmarking data set. The third thing you want to do is have some sort of tool to manage all that information. What I have, and it's not very complicated, I'm just a lawyer, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, a sophisticated uh, risk analyst, but what I've come up with and what's served me well for the last few years is a Excel spreadsheet, a matrix. Uh, and along, uh, you know, one axis, I have uh, the different codes. So if I have, you know, 15 codes that I'm looking at, I have uh, 15 columns. And then the rows from one to, I think I'm up to somewhere around 100, 120 uh, rows, I have the different things that I want to look for. And so I've broken down some of these subjects that we've been talking about, you know, into subtopics. So under presentation and style, I'm looking at brand use, uh, you know, uh, fonts, co color use, uh, graphical elements such as shaded boxes, uh, photography, um, uh, infographic use or other uh, icon use. So, I mean, you can break, you know, once you set your criteria up, you can break that criteria down even in subtopics. But I would put together some sort of matrix or tool that allows you, you know, in one document to go through and compare and contrast all of these codes that you're going to do a little bit deeper dive on. That way you don't forget, and like, oh, which code was that that had the really good photography and which one was it that, you know, did that interesting thing where they had the uh, infographic on anti-corruption or whatever it might be. It allows you to, to, to take notes in a, in a spreadsheet format so that when you're going through and evaluating where you are with your code and making determinations about maybe where you want to go with your code, uh, you have it in one place. So I think if you do those three things, if you, you know, select a good data set of peer and non-peer uh, codes to compare to. If you figure out what your criteria are going to be and uh, break that criteria down into some measurable topics, that can be really helpful. And then have a tool to kind of put it all together. That's going to help the team have a much better idea of how they're going to handle things. So I hope that's helpful in uh, benchmarking and in, in doing a benchmarking project uh, for your codes of conduct. And this could work uh, equally as well for you know policies, training, just about any uh, aspect of, of your program. Uh, obviously, it's a lot harder uh, to get examples of uh, standalone policies or, for example, vendor policies. This is something that I, again, recently have been helping companies more and more with. Uh, vendor and third-party policies uh, uh, codes of conduct and uh, vendor policies are not as readily available online 
as codes because again codes if you're a publicly traded company have to be on your website but more and more often you're finding uh anti-corruption policies uh vendor codes uh third-party codes some of these other uh valuable uh compliance documents are are available and you can you can get access to them so i would apply these three these three keys these three criteria uh for measuring um uh, uh other peer documents to just about any kind of document and you know um, trading materials just about anything i think it'd be helpful so i hope you find that helpful uh also hope uh that you join us uh, virtually or live uh for our for our sessions at scce again uh the what i'm drawing a lot of this material from is the session i'm going to uh, do on tuesday at 4 p.m mountain time or las vegas time i think it's mountain time there uh and it's uh, uh again lessons from 60 code of conduct projects uh five keys to an effective code of conduct uh revision um please join us for that uh again you can go to compliant uh, corporate compliance.org uh this scce's uh homepage and find information about signing up for that uh but until next time oh and I should say, as always, if you've got questions, if you uh, have suggestions for future podcasts, uh, you want to uh, ask us anything, you can get in touch with me directly, eric at moreheadconsulting.com, or you can reach us at moreheadconsulting.com uh, through our website or through compliancebeat.com. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.